0: All right, praise the Lord. Good morning. We have been going through uh, the book of First Thessalonians. So, if you would turn in your Bibles to First Thessalonians chapter four, verse thirteen, we're going to go through five verses this morning. How's everybody doing this morning? Praise the Lord. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 13, going down to verse 18. It says, But we do not want you to be uninformed, brethren, about those who are asleep, so that you will not grieve as do the rest who have no hope. For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, Even so, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep in Jesus. Very important words right there. For this we say to you by the word of the Lord, that we who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord will not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout. With the voice of the archangel, and with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first, then we who are alive and remain will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we shall always, do you hear that? We shall always be with the Lord. Therefore, comfort one another with these words. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I pray right now, Lord, that your spirit would begin to move through these words. Lord, that it would hit its intended target, Lord God, that, that our, we would have hearts, Lord, that would comprehend this. We would understand it, Lord God, that your words would be spoken and not mine, Lord, that you would let me hide behind your cross and uh, preach your word the way you intended it to be preached, Lord. Do a mighty work with it, Lord. In your name we pray. And everybody said, Amen. Amen. Thank you, Jesus. Hallelujah. Praise the Lord. So the title of my message is The Great Rescue. How many know this is the great rescue right here? And um, as we go through here, this is a letter that Paul wrote to the church of Thessalonica. Now, he visited that city around the late 50s, around 58 AD. This letter was actually written from Corinth, most likely, in the early 60s. But one thing you will learn about a letter is, and one thing that's very uh, good about the way that Paul uh, wrote to the churches, is how many know that a letter is very intimate? In fact, when you write a letter to somebody, you tend to pour out your heart. And so all of the letters, the epistles that Paul wrote to the churches, they're very intimate and they're very uh, open and he really pours his heart out and he really teaches and, and, and covers just so much wonderful material. But one of the problems that you have when you write... A letter is, it's kind of one-sided. You can hear what the person who's writing the letter is saying, but part of the investigative work is trying to figure out what are the questions he's trying to answer. And so that's what we do with Paul here. We, by his letter, and by what history we have around the letter and other letters that he wrote, we try to piece together what are the questions that he's trying to answer? And so he starts this letter off. He says, and this is Paul's great way of transitioning to another subject. He does it in every book nearly that Paul wrote. He transitions in a very similar way. He says, but we do not want you to be uninformed, brethren. That's his nice way of saying, in fact, if you look at the Greek here, um, He's actually saying, "We do not want you to be ignorant brothers." Okay, He's being very nice here. He throws in brethren because he says, "I w- don't want you to be uninformed, and I don't want you to be ignorant." And how many know that so much of um, so much of what we believe, if we aren't taught well, If we're not instructed properly from the Word of God, we're going to be uninformed. And if we're uninformed or we're ignorant, that is not a mean thing to say. It's just saying that you don't fully understand all the things that God wants you to understand. And there's lots of reasons why we don't. Sometimes we're a new convert, which is what we're running into in Thessalonica. We have a group of people that Paul spent... Three Sabbaths there. In fact, three weeks we know that he was there. We don't know how much longer Paul was there, but we know this group of people turned from idols to serve the living God. And they were a group of people that were previously pagan, less than a year in the Lord probably. And so these are very new Christians. And so Paul is saying, I'm trying to inform you and boy, did Paul do a good job of informing them in such a short letter. In fact, if you study a thing called systematic theology, uh, you begin to go in a lot of different areas of study. In fact, theology, uh, literally, if you look at the word in systematic theology, uh, theology is the study of the character and the nature of God. How many of you know you don't want to be uninformed about the personality, the character, and the nature of God. Because you, as you begin to understand, in fact, if we're uninformed, if we're not taught well, then we get misconceptions about God. How many know that? Some people make the mistake of saying, God is like me. So He must be mad at me. <laughs> or He must be okay with everything that I'm doing. Or maybe you think that God is this far away person, um, and you've been taught that he's very impersonal. And then through the study of theology, you begin to understand that, hey, God is right there, close. He wants to know you. He's given everything to know you, and he wants to be close to you. And so you begin to shatter all these myths by being instructed properly. And so that's all Paul's saying is, you're uninformed, you haven't been taught Well. And, and, and Paul's t- being very careful to teach them. And uh, sometimes you can think God is like your dad. And if somebody has an abusive dad, how many know they can uh, take that information and apply it to their Father in Heaven? And so God's got to shatter all of those misconceptions, and that's called theology. Another study is uh, what is called uh, Christology. Christology. And how many know Christology is a systematic study of finding out who the Messiah is? Who the Christ is? And so there's a whole section of, of a biblical studies, systematic theology, that just studies who is the Christ? What does he look like? Where is he from? What's he going to do? How do we know that it's him? How many think that's important to be informed and understand who he is, what he is, what he came to do, what he looks like, what he sounds like, what he acts like, all of those things. Uh, there's another area of study called ecclesiology. That is a study of the church. How many think it's important to be informed on the church? Who is the church? When did the church start? When does the church end? When does the uh, what are the leaders of the church? How does the church supposed to function? And, um, and, boy, doesn't it sound boring to say systematic theology? But then when you start realizing, hey, if we're instructed, we begin to understand. Pneumatology, that is the study of the Holy Spirit. How many think that's important? Study the gifts of the Holy Spirit, the fruit of the Holy Spirit, the work of the Holy Spirit. Why is the Holy Spirit here? How does it interact with the believer? You know, this is another area of study. Another area of study, soteriology. And, And how many know Paul has touched, the reason I'm going through all these is in this short letter, Paul has touched almost every one of these. He's given instruction on almost every one of these. And in soteriology, Paul very early in this letter, if you'll remember, he's instructing pagans who have been pagans their whole life. And he's telling them, you've turned from idols to serve the living God. And he got a report back that says that he was, they, were, they were bragging about how well they have grown in faith and love. He didn't mention hope though. And then Paul is instructing them now on hope. And so he's strengthening them there as they don't understand. And when we first started he was encouraging them that by faith they were what? Saved. Soteriology, the first phase of soteriology, this is Paul instructing again, and I'm saying this stuff so you'll understand that Paul is instructing at the highest level here. But soteriology, the study of salvation, says they must understand they're saved by grace through faith alone. And boy, Paul really takes his time to make sure they understand that. Can you tell that this church in Thessalonica understands that we were pagans less than a year ago, but now we're saved by his grace, not by our works? But then Paul goes another step. And last week we talked about the second phase of soteriology, which is sanctification. And Paul says, now you were saved for a purpose Because God wants you to be holy like he is holy. And he wants to sanctify you. And so Paul began to talk to them about their moral behavior. Because he was saying that sanctification is not justification. But God justified you and saved you for the purpose of sanctifying you and making you holy. How many know that? The third phase of soteriology is glorification. Meaning there's going to come a day when you are changed in a moment in the twinkling of an eye. And you're going to have a glorified body that will not sin. And that's the third phase of soteriology. That you have a glorified body and you have been justified, sanctified. Which means it's a process you're going to have till the day that we are glorified and we see him face to face. Receive a glorified body. Do you see that Paul is instructing here through a letter, a simple down-to-earth letter he's instructing at the highest level here. And so now Paul goes into an area of study that in systematic theology would be called eschatology. Eschatology means the study of the last things. And if you're not instructed on how things are going to end in this world you're you're in for a very rude awakening and we we need to be instructed on what is going to happen in these last days and so paul begins this discussion with i don't want you to be ignorant about this i want you to be i don't want you to be uninformed and how many know that if you are informed about something you can behave appropriately if you're uninformed about something you're caught unexpectedly and he's saying that the whole world on this particular topic is going to be caught unexpected like a thief in the night and he's telling us that you actually won't because you're a believer and because you're a believer and you've been instructed properly, you're not going to be surprised. And you're going to be ready. And you're going to be watching. And so this is the purpose of what Paul's doing here is to instruct us. So as we go here, he begins with two things that he wants to teach us here. In fact, sometimes we read this scripture And the title of my whole series of 1 Thessalonians is The Return Mail. Because this mail that he is sending is all about the return. And I told you at the end of every chapter, he mentions the return of Christ. And the very last verse of each chapter, that's how they've separated the book, is he mentions how the return is affecting these new believers. And now he gets to the real center of the whole discussion here in 4.13. And so 4.13 he's beginning to unveil what is called eschatology. It is a little study of the end times. And you say, well man, they probably had a pretty good understanding because they probably read the book of Revelation. Some of you know that they didn't. This book was written around sixty one, sixty two A.D. The book of Revelation was probably, almost certainly, not written until about 90 to 95 A.D., about 30 years later. So I want you to imagine what they know about the end times. What they know about the last things based on the Old Testament. They probably had the book of Galatians. In my opinion, I think they had the book of Matthew, but some... A lot of people would disagree with that, but I think Matthew was a very early book. James was a very early book. But aside from that, at this stage, they didn't have the book of Revelation. So they have questions, and and you can tell. Remember, it's investigative work to figure out what their questions were. And so their question seems to be very obviously. um, Paul had spent a lot of time talking to them about the end times. And so he wasn't there very long, but Paul did an excellent job of talking to them about salvation, talking to them about the church, talking about their moral behavior, because he just continually keeps saying, you know what I said. You remember what I said. You remember when I was with you. And so now they want a clarification. They want to know what's going to happen with this um, resurrection... And with this rapture. In fact a lot of us look at this. And the only thing sometimes we get when we read 4.13-18. Is that there is a rapture. But we got to remember there is a resurrection and a rapture. In fact let me read it. The resurrection it says in verse 14. For if we believe that Jesus Christ died and rose again. How many here believe that? Jesus Christ died and rose again. Alright, so for if we believe that, even so, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep in Jesus. So if you study ecclesiology, which Paul just went into this study here, he's saying that from the beginning of what we call the church, how many know the church had a beginning? The Bible says that... uh that Jesus said, upon this rock I will build my church, meaning he's going to build his church, and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. And so the beginning of that church starts, and those are those who were in Jesus. So ecclesiology will tell you, the study of church will tell you that it started then, and because it had a beginning, as you begin to study it, it will have an end. There's a church age end. And so he's telling us that if we believe that he died and rose again, even so, because he died and rose again, even so, he will bring with him those who have fallen asleep in Jesus. Now where did they get this idea? Jesus in John chapter 14 absolutely shocked them with they saying, In fact, we take it very lightly because we've read it at most every funeral that we've ever been to. We hear this quoted. But when Jesus said this to the Jewish disciples, they didn't know what he was talking about. They knew that one time Jesus was going to return. And when he returned, his feet would touch the ground. He would set up his kingdom on this earth and they would rule and reign with him in the millennial reign. They knew that for a thousand years Christ would set up His kingdom on the throne of David and He would rule and reign in the millennial reign. They knew that as Jewish people. But then Jesus sat down with them, John 14, and they were very distressed. They were distressed and they said they were concerned because He was going to die on the cross and He's talking about His death and they were very distressed. And Jesus says this, He says, Do not... Let your heart be troubled. Believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many dwelling places. If it were not so, I would have told you. For I go to prepare a place for you, and if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself. For where I am, you may be there also." He is actually telling these disciples that there is a place that I'm going to, which is heaven, and I'm preparing a place for you, and I wouldn't tell you if it wasn't the truth. And so when I die and I'm resurrected and you see me go up in the clouds, guess where you're going to go since you believe in my death and my resurrection? You're going to go with me. And Paul said it this way, when you're absent from your body, you are present with the Lord. So if you are a believer, you know you have to be a believer in his death and his resurrection to follow him to that place that he's prepared for us. But a lot of you know that that blew the Jewish mind. They'd never heard this before. They'd never heard that he was going to take them with him to heaven. All they had ever heard was he's going to come to the earth as a Messiah and rule and reign. So now, Jesus begins to tell him this in John 14, and Paul follows that up with, if you believe he died and rose again, even so God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep in Jesus. For this we say to you by the word of the Lord, that we who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord. Do you notice he said we're alive? We're alive and we remain and the Lord has came Hallelujah. Will not precede those who have fallen asleep. Meaning those who have died in Jesus Christ. They're going first. In fact, they are present with the Lord. They are not in a soul sleep. They are not unconscious. They are conscious. They are in the presence of the Lord. And you say, well, man, their old beat-up body is going to come and it's going to join them in the air. It's going to be a different body. It's going to be a glorified body. It's going to be a body that can't sin. It's going to be a restoration of the body we had in the garden before we ever sinned. How many you know it's a new glorified body that won't get sick? It won't, it won't get cancer. It won't have depression. It won't have sin. It won't have all these things. And man, that is grounds for shouting. In fact, you can sit down and you can, you can sit to yourself and you can say, Oh man. So, and sometimes I I do this. I say, Man, I feel so bad. I see my wife and I are getting older and, you know, and I feel the aches and the pains and the struggles in this world. But you know what? We're a day closer, a year closer. We're closer to being in the presence of the Lord. The minute we close our eyes, if we have faith in Jesus Christ, it's so worth it because we're going to open our eyes in the presence of the Lord. Hallelujah. This is big stuff right here. There is a resurrection, but then there's also a rapture. And you say, oh, I don't know about that word, man. I just don't know about that. Man, I know there's a resurrection and... There's a catching up here, something. What is this ketchup thing? You know, I mean, what is it? So there is a rapture. He says, for the Lord himself, not an angel, the Lord himself will descend from where? Heaven, with a shout, with the voice of the archangel, with the trumpet of God. And some of you have said, trumpet of God. And I'm going to answer that question later, so you hold on. And the dead in Christ will rise first. That's the resurrection. Then there's the rapture in verse 17. Those who are alive and remain will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord where? In the air. And so we shall always... It's over, church, at that point. We will always be with the Lord. That means we're going to the place He's prepared for us. And seven years later, after the tribulation is done, how many know that we will come back with Him to the ground? And we'll rule and reign with Christ on an earth, and His kingdom will be set up on this earth. And But I've got a real problem here. Now, let me read another scripture, and then I'm going to get into the problem. Behold, I tell you a mystery, 1 Corinthians 15, 51 and 52. Behold, I tell you a mystery, meaning something that has not been revealed before. We will not all sleep, but we will all... You know what all means in the Greek? All. Man, we've got scholars here. We always do. I never can get anything past you guys. We will all be changed in a moment in the twinkling of an eye. As quick as the light can hit an eyeball and recognize light, that's how fast we're going to be changed and transformed. We'll be changed in a moment in the twinkling of an eye at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound, the dead will be raised imperishable, and we will be changed. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. Praise the Lord. Well, here's where my problem comes in. I'm going to have to spend a whole lot of time on this word. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 17. And join me and humor me on this a little. But this word... After that, we who are still alive and are left will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. So we will be with the Lord forever. So I go to the Greek, and I start looking at this word. And so I go down. We'll be caught up. Strong, 726, arpazo. And I start looking at all these uses of this word. It's used in Matthew eleven twelve. 12. It says, the violent will take it by force. Harpazo. Meaning that those who are violent will take it and seize it by force and grab it. Harpazo. Right? Matthew 12, 29. It says, um, it talks about the strong man... Let me see if I can pull up the scripture here. No, I can't. But it talks about the strong man and how if there is a strong man in a house, the thief doesn't break in and harpazo his property, seize it, or take it from him. This isn't a pretty word. Matthew 13, 19, he's talking about believers in his hand. No, actually, he's talking about the seed that's thrown into the ground on this one. And he says, the enemy comes and harpozzles it away, snatches it away. See, this word's kind of violent. It's seizing, it's snatching, it's taking it's forcefully doing everything. John 6.15. It says they came and tried to take Jesus by harpazo, force. The guards came and tried to take him by force. John 10.28. No one can snatch or pluck or seize them out of my hand. Harpazo. Are you starting to see the theme here? Snatch, seize, violently, take. (laughs) There's no nice ways to use this word. Acts 8.39. Philip is ministering, baptizing somebody, and it says that he's immediately snatched and put in a different geographic location by the Holy Spirit. He's bodily translated to a different location. I don't know any other way to interpret that. He's harpazoed. He's snatched. The invasion of the body snatchers, right? It's very difficult to find another way to interpret that. In um, Acts 23.10, the troops have gone down to take... By force. Second Corinthians twelve two. Uh, Paul is talking about being snatched and caught up into third heaven. Guess what the word is? Arpazo snatched. The invasion of the body snatchers. <laughs> First Thessalonians, the one we're reading today. Okay, they go with caught up, caught away. Terrible translation. Okay, let's go to the next one. Jude one twenty three. It says that he is snatching or pulling them out of the fire or puzzled them out of the fire. Here's the problem. This word was translated by Jerome in the Latin Vulgate in 400, approximately 400 A.D. That version of the Bible was used probably a thousand years until the English Bible began to be translated and they used the word caught away. But how many know the word that was used for the majority of Christian history meaning the Jerome Latin Vulgate was used far longer than our English Bible has even been used. How many know that he interprets the word with the word rapture? Which means, uh, this word means to seize, to grab, to snatch, to pull. In fact, we get our word, and this is a very dirty word, rape. is a Root of that word. How many know that? It means to take by force. So I've got a real problem now. Sure, those who are dead are being resurrected. And they're getting a glorified body. But those who are alive and remain are being snatched. Snatched. Do you realize that they're forcefully being removed from the earth? This isn't a light thing. This isn't a small thing. This isn't a... Non-aggressive thing. This is a thing that says. I'm snatching my bride out of there. I'm getting her out of there. Because something is getting ready to happen on the earth. I'm rescuing my bride. And so when he says. He snatches us from the earth. How many know that that is a rescue mission. Because something bad is getting ready to happen on this earth. And he wants to get his bride out of there. And we need to understand that. And you say. Well man is that. Is that biblical? Is that biblical? That Well, listen to this. Listen to these words. 1 Thessalonians, uh, in the next chapter, 5, 2 to 4. Listen very carefully. For you yourselves know full well that the day of the Lord, remember that word, day of the Lord. We're going to define what that is. Because this is the ominous thing that God has sent His rescue mission for His bride to protect us from the day of the Lord. So remember that, word, that phrase very carefully. It will come just like a thief in the night. What a pleasant feeling. You're sleeping in your bed. You've got all the doors latched. You've checked them two or three times. How many do that? I do it. I check the bolt, I check the latch, I check everything. But man, they're so, they're so crafty, they find a window. That one window that you left open to get that nice summer breeze. And man, wouldn't you know it, I was up all night. I fall asleep at 3.15 and at 3.42, they found that one window that was open. And they came at the most inopportune time. I mean, no, if you are not aware of what's going to happen in the last days, you're going to be caught like a thief in the night. But then it goes on. While they are saying peace and safety, did you notice, and you can really miss this, do you notice he said they? They. Very important here. While they are saying peace and safety, then destruction will come upon them suddenly, like labor pains upon a woman with child, and they, they will not escape. They won't be rescued. But you, brethren, are not in darkness. That the day would overtake you like a thief. See, they will not escape. You will because you've been instructed. And church, I am instructing with everything in my heart today. Please hear what I'm saying today. The day of the Lord will come like a woman in childbirth. And there's no turning back when that happens. That is full on day of the Lord tribulation. And God is saying, you will escape They won't. And so that's why we have to be instructed on eschatology. You say, but Jesus didn't. This is Paul. Luke 21, 34. Listen very carefully. Be careful or your hearts will be weighed down. This is Jesus. Your hearts will be weighed down with carousing, drunkenness. And you say, well, I don't do that. And the anxieties of life. That day, remember that phrase, that day, will close on you suddenly like a trap. I'm going to stop right there. Do you know what it feels like to have a trap close in around you and you can't get out? Because when that day comes, you've sprung the trap and you're not getting out of it. When you're in the tribulation, you're in the tribulation. and But let, let's see the good news as he goes on. For it will come on all those who live on the face of the whole earth. You say, but Chad, my theology from the internet... My theology from the internet says we're going to be on the earth but protected. But Jesus said... It will come on all. Does anybody know what all means in the Greek? Do we have a Greek? Okay, it's all. All those who live on the face of the whole earth be always on the watch and pray that you may be able to escape all that is about to happen and that you may be able to stand before the Son of Man. That you... May be able to escape what? All that is coming on all who live on the face of the whole earth. So you have to not be on the earth and you have to be in the presence of the Son of Man. How many know in Revelation the first thing that happens? In fact, we have the book of Revelation, they didn't yet. In the book of Revelation, we see that the door is opened in heaven and there's a multitude that cannot be numbered. They're in heaven and they're looking at the Lamb. John's crying and said, Why is there not somebody worthy to open the book? Why is there not one worthy to open the seven seals. And they said, look, there is one who's worthy and there's a land that's been slain from the foundation of the world. And how many know when he opened the seven seals, it released the final plan of God to restore the earth back the way God gave it and give the deed back to the the Messiah and restore everything the way it was before sin. And how many know that we're there to watch it We're in the presence of the Son of Man in heaven just like God promised. And God gave us an escape because what happens next is the Antichrist is released and we're watching it silently in heaven as it falls upon the earth and all who dwell upon the earth. And we have a chance today to escape. And and if you don't listen to me today, the trap is going to go all around you and there's no way to get out. And there's a whole different survival plan and it's not pretty. In fact, the, one of the very few ways you can be saved through that tribulation is to literally allow your head to be cut off. Seal it with your own testimony and your own blood. And you think it's hard now, church. Boy, it is going to be hard then. Eschatology, very important to know the last things. 1 Thessalonians 5, 8-11, a few verses after the one I just read in 1 Thessalonians. It says, But since we are of the day, let us be sober. Put on the breastplate of faith and love as a helmet, the hope of salvation. Listen to this. For God has not destined us for wrath, but for obtaining salvation, Through our Lord Jesus Christ who died for us so that whether we are awake or asleep, whether we're in the resurrection or the rapture, we will live together with him. Therefore, encourage one another and build up one another just as you are also doing. Now, how in the world is it an encouragement if I'm looking to go through the tribulation and the wrath? And people are out there preaching that we're appointed to wrath when the Bible very clearly says we are not. God has given us an escape. And church, I'm giving you today the great rescue plan and do not miss it because he's made a way of escape. Hallelujah. First Thessalonians 1.9. This is the return mail. I'm telling you, it's awesome. For they themselves report about us what kind of reception we had with you. How you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God. And to wait for what? For his son from heaven. Whom he raised from the dead. That is Jesus who rescues us from the wrath to come. There's no mistaking this theology is there? No mistaking it whatsoever. So what we have to begin to understand, one of the first things that is very important to understand, and if you study patristic fathers, patristic fathers are the early church fathers that followed those who were in the New Testament. So when you look at that first group of believers, the Polycarps, the Irenaeus, the, the ones who were actually spending time with John, spending time uh, with the early disciples, as you begin to study, one of the things you see consistent with the early church in the Bible, you see consistent with the early patristic fathers, is they all believed that there was going to be an imminent or sudden Return. And church, we can never stop preaching the imminent or sudden return. If somebody is preaching to you a doctrine that says that Jesus Christ is not going to return suddenly and we should be ready and we should be purifying ourselves and we should be living in the light and not living in the dark and being ready because it's going to come suddenly like a thief in the night and we don't want to be surprised and we want to be ready. They're not preaching the Bible that I'm preaching because the Bible that I'm preaching Every early believer from Peter to Paul to John to all of the disciples, the early patristic fathers, every one of them uh, said the same exact thing. Be ready because Christ can come at any moment. And church, if we're going through a seven-year tribulation, and that is the return and only the return, there is a return after seven years, but there's also a return to rescue the church from the wrath to come. And if they're not preaching that, they're not preaching the Bible. I'm sorry. And I wish I had time in this message to go through the allegorists, the Gnostics, the, all the different early church um, teachers who went that route away from the imminent return of Christ because they sent the church down a path they should have never gone. And I'm saying that with authority from the Word of God. You say, but I read it on the internet. You better get your nose off the internet and start getting your nose into some really good systematic theology. I'm sorry, I'm so mean. So in order to understand the imminent return and the suddenness of the Lord's return, We need to understand some terminology because they did not have the book of Revelation. And so we need to understand what they understood as Paul began presenting this. There's some terminologies here that are very synonymous in the Old Testament. In fact, uh, you heard the one term called the day of the Lord. And so the day of the Lord very consistently and very synonymously Is the seven year period, is the day of the Lord. And so God is trying to rescue us from the seven year period. That is specifically what they're talking about the seven year period that the Lord is trying to rest, um, trying to protect us from. So very consistently, the day of the Lord is the seven year period. But there are many other terms that the Bible uses. And this is where people get confused. In fact, in uh, Thessalonians, it calls it the day of Christ. It says the day of Christ, 2 Thessalonians 2, 2, 4, and 8, it says the day of Christ shall not come except there come a falling away first. Man of sin be revealed, son of petition. Now, we're going to be getting into that, but it's called the day of Christ. When you see the day of Christ, that is synonymous with the day of the Lord, the seven-year period. In fact, if you go through the book of Daniel... Daniel predicts that there would be 70 weeks, and I didn't actually, I should have wrote wrote down my information today, but the 70 weeks of Daniel are very critical because Daniel actually prophesies the exact amount of days, and actually I've got it written down somewhere, but the exact amount of days until Jesus would ride in on a donkey on Palm Sunday. How many know that? Daniel prophesied that hundreds and hundreds of years before. And when the Bible says, Blessed is he that comes in the name of the Lord, that psalm was about the day that Jesus would enter on Palm Sunday and he would be cut off. It says the Messiah and Daniel's prophecy would be cut off. And it would be the end of the, when he's cut off, that's the end of the 69th week and there's one week left left. It's called the 70th week of Daniel, and that is the day of the Lord consistently in the word of God. The day of the Lord is that 70th week of Daniel. And that 70th week of Daniel has a very special trigger that we'll be covering over the next several weeks. The seven-year period starts, very important that you know this, when the Antichrist signs a peace pact um, in Israel. And so in Jerusalem, when he signs that peace pact, that is the timing that starts that seven-year period. So we've got the day of the Lord. We have the day of Christ. The Old Testament also talks about the day of wrath. Zephaniah, listen to this. Near is the great day of the Lord. Near and coming very quickly. Listen, the day of the Lord is... In it the warrior will cry out bitterly. The day of wrath is that day, a day of trouble and distress, a day of destruction and desolation, a day of darkness and gloom, a day of clouds and thick darkness. I always say, Zephaniah, won't you just say what you think? What a terrible day. A day of trumpet and battle cry against the fortified cities, high corner towers, I will bring distress on men so that they will walk like the blind because they have sinned against the Lord. Their blood will be poured out like dust, their flesh like dung. Neither their silver nor their gold will be able to deliver them on the day of the Lord's wrath. And all the earth will be devoured in the fire of his jealousy, for he will make a complete end, indeed a terrifying one, of all the inhabitants of the earth. Why do you think God says that unless he stops it, Not even the elect would be saved. In fact, do you know that God must remove the righteous before he can pour out his wrath? Very fascinating principle. The righteous are removed and then the wrath falls down. And you say, well, where can you find that at in the Bible? Do you know that when Jesus... in fact, shh. Should have, yeah, I wrote it down. All right. Jesus said, And as it happened in the days of Noah, so will it be in the days of the Son of Man. They were eating, they were drinking, they were marrying, they were given in marriage until the day that Noah entered the ark and the flood came and destroyed them all. How many know that God couldn't destroy the earth until He put those eight on that ark? they use another example it was the same as happened in the days of Lot they were eating and drinking they were buying, they were selling, they were planting they were building but on the day Lot went out from Sodom it rained fire and brimstone from heaven and destroyed them all it will be just the same way when the son of man is revealed he's telling you a pattern here That when he removes the righteous from the earth. Now I can pour my wrath. And did you hear Zephaniah's definition of that wrath? Another thing it's called is the day of indignation. I want you to listen to what Isaiah says about the day of indignation. Isaiah 26, 19 says, Your dead men shall live. Together with my dead body they shall arise. They will wake and they will sing those who dwell in the dust. For thy dew is as the dew of herbs, and the earth shall cast out the dead. What's he talking about here? The dead will live They'll rise up, they'll sing, and they'll, they'll wake, and they'll sing, they'll rise from the ground, the earth will give up the, cast out their dead. It says, come, my people, enter thou into thy chambers. That's a marriage chamber, by the way. And shut the doors around you. Hide yourself, as it were, for a little moment until the indignation is past. Ezekiel 20, 24, I believe it is, calls it the day of indignation. How many you know that God is saying that he's going to take his bride into the chamber and she's going to wait in there a little while until his indignation has passed? Hallelujah. So back to the question of eminence, suddenness. So why is God so quickly seizing, grabbing? In fact, the definitions say to seize with force, to take what is yours. Okay, why is God doing that with such force, such suddenness, such quickness? Because He does not want, He hasn't ordained His bride to be here during the tribulation. That's why. That's why. That pro- do you have a problem with that word? Seizing aggressively, forcefully. How else can I interpret that word when everything says it's with force? It's not catching up. It's seizing, grabbing, snatching, pulling, as it were, from the fire. And God is coming down and quickly taking his bride because suddenly a thief is coming upon the world. The trap is being set. There's no way out. The woman is in labor and now there's no way out. And God has provided a way of escape. God is a great rescue plan and it's important that we understand that plan. How many know if you trust in Jesus Christ, With all of your heart, you don't have a thing to worry about. Either I'm going to die and I'm going to be in his presence, or I'm going to live and when the tribulation comes... and, And you know the early church, they weren't looking for the Antichrist. If your theology is we're going through the tribulation and there is no rapture, guess what you're looking for? You're living in a bunker. You're waiting for the Antichrist. You're constantly trying to figure out who he is. You're constantly trying to figure out what to do. And Jesus said, no, worry about winning souls. Put your time in winning the lost. Spend your time getting people ready. Spend your time making people fall in love with Jesus because Jesus doesn't want his beloved to be here. And we need to know that message. And can I tell you the greatest missionaries the world has ever seen have been those who have been waiting the coming of the Lord. That's what it means to be an evangelical. We throw that word around, we don't even know what it means, but to be an evangelical means my mission is to win as many as possible because I do not want them to go through the tribulation. I wouldn't want my worst enemy to go through the tribulation. That's what makes us evangelicals. Hallelujah. We need to be evangelicals again. We need to quit with the canned words and the titles and we need to actually be it. Like we need to evangelize people because we don't want our worst enemy to go through this dreadful day of the Lord. In fact, the day of the Lord is one of the most prominent messages in the entire Bible. You can't miss it. You can't miss the day of the Lord. It's such a prominent doctrine in the Bible. And you also can't miss the escape that Jesus has provided. Names for the rapture in Scripture. The appearing in Hebrews 9.28. The blessed hope of the appearing in Titus 2.13. The catching away in 1 Thessalonians 4.17. The changing or transforming. I like Corinthians 15. The entering of the bridal chamber, Isaiah twenty six, the gathering in Second Thessalonians two, the manifesting of the sons of God, Romans eight eighteen, the mercy in Jude 21, the receiving in John fourteen, the redemption of our bodies in Romans eight eighteen, the rescue deliverance in first Thessalonians one ten, the rescue escape in Daniel twelve one and two, the revelation of Jesus Christ, first Corinthians one seven in 1 Peter 1, 13 and the transformation in Philippians 3:20 yeah it talks about it a little bit hallelujah i'm glad it does now let me answer one more question before i close some people have looked when the bible says <clears throat> the bible says in Thessalonians For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel, with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ shall rise first. 1 Corinthians, Behold, I tell you, a mystery will not all sleep, will all be changed a moment, twinkling my eye, at the last trumpet. The trumpet will sound, and the dead will be raised imperishable. Now, we've got to get in Paul's head here and figure out what he's talking about. Because there's a lot of false doctrine out there, and it's very innocent most of the time. But they say, man, you know what? Paul was reading through Revelation. And he's seen that there were seven trumpets. And he said, well, the last of the seven trumpets, in the middle of the tribulation, that's when the rapture is going to happen. And so a lot of people have taught this doctrine. But here's the problem. Revelation wasn't written until 30 years later. There was no mention of seven trumpets of Revelation when Paul wrote this. Plus, the trumpet in Revelation is blown by an angel. This is the trumpet of God. Different trumpets. You say, well, I still don't believe you, Chad. Paul, all through Corinthians is actually using language from the feasts of Israel. And how many know the feasts of Israel are a prophetic timetable? I didn't say pathetic timetable. Nothing pathetic about it. I said prophetic timetable. How many know that Israel is almost playing out a script of the end times? Biblical eschatology is very firmly based on all the feasts that God gave Israel um, in the 1400 B.C. And so Paul is very clearly following through Corinthians through those feasts. Do you know that the Passover feast Jesus fulfilled to the very moment they were sacrificing the Lamb? How many know that the Feast of Unleavened Bread was fulfilled to the letter by the death of Jesus Christ and the resurrection. How many know that Pentecost, the Feast of Pentecost, was fulfilled to the letter by the church when the Holy Spirit fell and the church became an entity at that point? So why would the fall feast not follow the same pattern? And so Paul is very clearly... In fact, Pentecost, a lot of people don't know this, but go to the Jewish Encyclopedia. Pentecost is called the first Trump. The first Trump is Pentecost. In fact, they believe that when the thunders sounded on Mount Sinai on the first Pentecost, when they came out of Egypt, they believed that it went in 70 different languages and they heard uh, the voice of God, and they call that the first trump. That's when the law was given, and it's also when the Spirit was given. Uh, Israel became a nation, and the church became the church on the day of Pentecost. But it's called in Jewish theology, the first trump. Now the next feast is called the Feast of Trumpets. And it is called in Jewish theology, the last trump. And then there's another one called the Day of Atonement, and it's called the Great Trump. So you got the first Trump, the last Trump, and the Great Trump. All right? And Donald Trump is not any of those three Trumps. All right? You got a somebody's trying to sell you a book. All right? <laughs> you guys are saying, please get political. No, I'm not. But listen to this, the Feast of Trumpets. In fact, let me give you a little theological timeline here, okay? So we have the uh, first trump, which is Pentecost, all right? The church is founded, the outpouring of the Holy Spirit, beginning of the church age. How many know that the end of the church age and the beginning of the tribulation is the Feast of Trumpets? And then seven days later is the Day of Atonement. And that feast symbolizes the second coming of Christ at the end of the seven years, the, the um, putting down of the Antichrist and the setting up of God's kingdom. How many know that? And so it's called the Great Trump the last trump. in fact, let me give you a few things. The Festival of Trumpets is known by several names. Rosh Hashanah, meaning the New Year's Day or the head of the year in one name. It's also called the Yom Hadin, which is the Day of Judgment. It's called the Yom HaZikaron, which is the Day of Remembrance by the ancient rabbis. Another name is Yom Tura, which means the Day of the Awakening Blast. The Day of the Awakening Blast. Leviticus 23:24, speaking to the children of Israel, saying, "In the seventh month, the first day of the month, you shall have a Sabbath, a memorial of blowing of trumpets, a holy convocation." The Hebrew word translated "blowing of trumpets" is the Hebrew word Torah. It normally refers to a trumpet blast that awakens troops. The ancient rabbis taught this prophetically referred to the time of the resurrection. The resurrection of the dead will will occur. On Yam Hadin, uh, which is also called Rosh Hashanah from the Talmud. Rosh Hashanah has been taught that in the month of Tishri the world was created and Tishri was where it was redeemed for the time to come. <clears throat> Rabbi Herman Kievel Uh, writing in the High Holy Days, published in 1959. In his work, he states that many Jewish scholars, including including Theodore Gaster, have taught that the festival of Rosh Hashanah was called the festival of the last trump from the most ancient of times. So Paul didn't have the book of Revelation. Paul is clearly referring to the festival of the last trump. He's referring to the feast of trumpets, And let me tell you something, the Feast of Trumpets was an unusual feast because they celebrated over two days because they were waiting for a new moon. So it was the festival where they said, nobody knows the hour. How many know that he says nobody will know the hour or the day? And everything prophetically points to uh, Paul speaking to that as the last trump because that was the festival all through Corinthians up till that scripture? He's uh, using the feast to uh, give spiritual insights. And so you would be in error if you said that the rapture was going to happen in the middle of the tribulation. And why do I say that? Because it breaks every law of imminence, like it is not going to happen suddenly without notice. In the middle of the tribulation, because as soon as that peace pact is signed, the Antichrist is revealed, then you can count the days to the middle. And um, it is not sudden. Everybody knows the day and hour if it's in the middle. And if it's at the end, you know, it's followed by more signs than the world has ever seen. So that rapture cannot be at the end of seven years because it would be followed by more signs in history which would make God a liar. Said it's a signless event. It can happen at any moment. It can happen suddenly. So church, stand to your feet. I, I know that's a lot to take in, but I just want to make sure that I cover that rapture doctrine very, very clearly. <clears throat> Hallelujah. Somebody turn the lights down for me. I don't know why I do that but I do it I'm not scary when lights are off hallelujah let's pray heavenly father lord Jesus we're so thankful for what you've done for your bride lord we want to be that bride that's without spot or wrinkle we want to be that bride that is prepared we want to have our lamp full of oil we want to be ready and watching and waiting lord obedient Uh, not living recklessly with the anxieties of life, but living faithfully, waiting and watching. And Lord, we want to be excited. Lord, we don't want to be like those that live without hope. Oh, Lord, we want to be excited every day closer to being in your presence. Lord, we want to be excited about telling other people Lord, we want to have the urgency of an evangelical church, Lord. Rescue. Snatch as many as we can from the fire, Lord. Lord, do that work in us, Lord. Touch the hearts of your people. Church, I'm going to open up the altars. We're going to worship. But let me tell you one more thing. Reunion. Reunion and... You've ever lost anybody you've ever loved? What's it going to be like? They're in the presence of the Lord. They're going to have a brand new body. You're going to have a brand new body. We're going to meet in the air. And you're going to look at me and I'm going to look at you. And you're going to say, wow, you clean up nice. I don't know that we sit around and think about that enough, reunion. The hope that comes with the reunion and man, I just think about those things today. Be encouraged today and and if you're not right with the Lord, I mean, just do it. I mean, there's nothing more important. Don't be trapped in this tribulation. It'll happen at any moment. There's no way to turn around after it happens. You just gotta go through it then. And that's man, breaks my heart to see anybody go through it. Hallelujah. Praise the Lord. Just find a place to pray. And we're here to pray for you. Beginning to go into the questions they have about the return of the Lord, and so it'll go into the next chapter and the next book, Second Thessalonians. So, Paul is really doing a fantastic job of making sure they're ready, and as a pastor, that's all I care about is that you're ready personally. I don't mind dying and being in the presence of the Lord at any moment. How many feel that? Um, I don't mind the rapture, and the most thrilling event I'll ever experience probably is that meeting and that reunion and just everything about that event. Nothing's ever been like that. But my heart hurts. Live to be a hundred years old. If the Lord doesn't return, I want to live to be a hundred years old because I want to save as many as I can possibly save. that it doesn't make sense. You want to be with the Lord with everything in me. I would be so happy to be in the presence of the Lord, so happy to be raptured. But my heart hurts because there's. I believe the doctrine. I believe the teaching. I believe it with everything inside of me. And I'm looking around me at the people I love and the people I care about and, and I want everybody to be with me and so I want to live as long as I can live because I want to preach as long as I can preach. I want to reach as many as I can reach. I want, you know, the Lord to be long-suffering and long-suffering and because I want to reach as many as I can reach but I know that God knows best church we got to start hurting like that we got to start getting a burden for the people we love and we got to start having conversations if you're in this room and you don't know that you're right i can help you know that you're right the bible gives a path to know for sure and it's a simple path you say good it's easy no it's not easy it's simple there's a difference simple and easy are different it's so simple the Bible says a fool need not make a mistake but it's not easy and so I can give you the simple path and you'll be amazed how much better life is when you lay your head down and know that death no longer has a sting death no longer has an impact getting old doesn't have a problem anymore being, being closer and closer to the presence of the Lord makes me happy but I still hurt to be here and church we've got to be that way we can't just say abandon it all let's get out of here we got to say I want to reach as many people every day every moment I want to be ready but I want to bring as many with me as I can hallelujah so if you're not sure where you're at with the Lord let's get it right today if not tomorrow I promise tomorrow or even the next moment we've got to do it today because death is a worse trap than the tribulation it's over all hope is gone whenever our heart stops beating and so today is the day of your salvation hallelujah let's close in a word of prayer if you need prayer you can pray with me today you can pray with me any day of the week hallelujah and we'll make sure you're right hallelujah let's pray Lord, we love you, and, and Lord, we thank you for your clear instructions so that we don't have to miss it, Lord. You've given us so much opportunity, Lord, and you've been so loving and so caring and so long-suffering and merciful. And Lord, we just pray for our loved ones, Lord, the people that we love and we care about. And Lord, we pray that you would go before us and quicken their hearts. Words in our mouth to minister to them. Lord, do a mighty work in our community, Lord, and our families. Oh, Lord, do it, Lord, before it's too late. Help us, Lord. Pour out your spirit, Lord. Oh, yes. Lord, we pray these things. In your mighty name, Lord Jesus. And everybody said,